0: for the Oral History Project from the Eastman House. My name is Arthur Ullman. It's February 23rd, 11, 11 a.m. We're in San Francisco. And we're drinking tea.
1: Which is hot.
0: first question I want to get to with you is some background information. All right. Concerning your early years and how you got to Indiana University, mm-hmm. and a little background to set the stage. Okay. Um, the arts have
1: been, uh, been an interest of mine most of my life. They're the, really, they're the thread of sanity in my strange life. So, photography, when it came along, when I was a youngster, just was, to me, another one of the ways to make pictures, like drawing was and painting and so on and so forth. And I fell into it very easily. Um, I'll skip over um, much of what happened to me in my youth. I'll just simply say that uh, by the time World War II came along, I was already a photographer. I went into the Army Air Force. Uh, I was on an air crew as a gunner in the Eighth Air Force. I came back from overseas, waiting uh, uh, for a trip to the Pacific after I'd finished the European tour of duty, and uh, the bomb went off, and uh, so I was assigned to a photo lab, waiting for my papers to catch up. Um, I was discharged. I started in business with two other fellows, a design business, photo and design, in the Midwest. Um, but it, it succeeded. They're still in the business. I sold my part of it out, because it bored me, uh, and went to um, Los Angeles uh, to the Art Center uh, in 19, late 1946 or 47, I've forgotten which, 46, I guess it was, because I wanted that <clears throat> finishing touch that the Art Center could give. Uh there I met uh, a number of people uh, as guests, none of them on the faculty except Eddie Kaminsky, but he brought in guests. Man Ray was one, and um, Ansel Adams was one, and uh, Edward Westman was one, and on and on like that. And uh, I became interested at that time uh, in something I had just started in the Army, and that was documentary photo work. So I worked out in Boyle's High District and other places in LA and finally I quit the Arts Center realizing that what they had to offer and the direction I was going were no longer the same. And uh, I wanted some background in anthropology and I chose by sheer accident uh, Indiana University because I had established state residency there and my mother was living in the state at the time. So I went to IU and took some (coughs) courses in Anthro by 1948, no intention of getting a degree or any of that sort of thing. I became so fascinated with the idea that uh, a university is just what it is, a university. And I stayed on for a few degrees and did research and taught in Anthro and so on. (laughs) And it was there that I met Henry Smith. Uh, I met him, I believe, uh, probably in the spring of uh, 1948. I asked him if I could use his photo lab, and he was rushed and busy, and uh, he was kind enough not to tell me to screw off, but that's what he would like to have done, I'm sure. And so he said, you'll have to sign up for a course. So the next year I signed up for beginning photo, because that was the only thing open. And uh, we didn't get along at all at first, because he was trying to put me through the Bauhaus training program, and I had already been through something like that many years before. And then I showed him my documentary work, and he immediately uh, uh, said, you know, you should be doing independent study, and uh, from then on we got on very well. We had a lot in common, in terms of our interests. Uh, Our marriages (coughs) took place about the same times. our first children were born a month apart. You know, many things of of this sort took place. Um, His concerns, very independent, and mine, uh, equally independent, uh, didn't fit too well into most of the organizational patterns of photography. And uh, being in the Midwest, really quite isolated uh, at Indiana, he was. um, I think um, held us together, he and I and Jerry Uelsman and Jack Welpot and a number of other people. Because there was just a place that you're rather isolated, you felt at the time. So, that's how I got to know Henry. And we've been uh, uh, colleagues and friends uh, ever since, which is, I guess, what, um, 23, 4, 5 years.
0: Well, it's interesting that you were one of the uh, few people who seemed to have gone against the tide of... uh the great rush to California in the years when Weston and Adams and Minor White yes. were, were all out here, meeting <coughs> well, people from the Midwest, yeah. basically.
1: I came back in um, uh, 1952. I had, I wanted to do some research in, uh, in the folk art, a non-European uh, folk art uh, collection over at Berkeley, and I moved my young family at that time uh, with just one youngster back out here and I met Miner at that time. He was just getting ready to leave to go back to Rochester or to go to Rochester for the first time. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned in uh, that after image issue on the SPE, <coughs> our conversations were relatively short and uh, we didn't speak too seriously about the subject of photography and so on, except through correspondence occasionally. Uh, He was kind enough to stay in touch with me and uh, with Henry. And I think, uh, for for Henry, uh, that was that was really a sort of godsend, because uh, uh, he felt terribly, terribly isolated. I can't uh, impress that upon you enough. Uh, he was being passed over for promotion, because he didn't fit the mold that the chairman of the art department had in mind. Uh photographers should look like somebody, and this man was making synthetic color prints, photograms, all this sort of thing. And um, Henry Hope, who was chairman of the department, I suspect, had Steichen in mind, or someone as far back as that, and uh, Smith didn't fit that. Enough, so. He was already a man of 42 years old when he started teaching there. I believe he was, and maybe he wasn't quite that old, well, close. He'd been through World War II. He'd been an editor of magazines, newspaper man, so on and so forth. He knew the business, you know, but that doesn't help in academia sometimes. So he felt isolated he felt put upon. Now, he became, um, I think, and I think he became very bitter about the system that he was into and has berated himself lately after retirement for not having left. Well, I think many of us are very happy he didn't leave, but it took its toll on him. So...
0: Could we, could we talk a bit about his teaching? Uh, what kind <clears> of assignments? What was he actually doing in the classroom?
1: I don't know, because I... I worked with him on an independent basis, and I helped him uh, as an assistant, I believe, one semester. uh, His teaching method I've outlined in the the little appreciation I wrote on his retrospective. It was essentially what I call the, the Bauhaus method, and it's a beautifully related kind of experience for a person who has not had that experience before. Uh, it starts with simple material and impresses upon you that it's, not, it's related to an organic process, which is you. It's not related to a machine process. Um, Henry, I know, over the years, was impressed by Maholi and had corresponded, or had written to Maholi before Maholi came to this country. Uh, didn't get an answer until Maholi arrived in Chicago, then got correspondence. And they began talking about color theory, so on and so forth. And uh, Henry was the first photo teacher at the new Bauhaus, where he brought his enlarger, and Molly brought his enlarger, and that was the photo department. That's how it started. <laughs> yeah. uh, at that time, Kepish, and uh, then later Arthur of uh, Chicago, Siegel. Uh, Siegel, and others who were involved, and uh, so on and so forth. He was very impressed by the Bauhaus idea, which is terribly misunderstood, uh, because people can't seem to get it through their heads that it starts with physiology, with the human being, and it, it as an organism, and what happens to it in an industrial society.
0: Did. Uh Did he discuss with you, or or do you know what his feelings were concerning Moholy's ideals about design for industry, uh, applied art, social utility of art?
1: Yes. He uh, said that he wouldn't teach, if I recall, on one occasion. He said that he wouldn't teach people to be uh, commercial photographers. He would teach them to be photographers, that is, to know their materials, find a central image that they could make some sense out of their own life with uh, to master things. They could do with it what they wished after that. But he also, while he was showing you the rudiments, he was also talking about the values, how the value judgment is placed upon whatever comes out of the end of this process. And so you were getting what I have Will still call a liberal education while also getting a studio education. Um, that was not unusual with all the people I've met who were associated with the Bauhaus seriously in Germany, uh, with Albers even at Black Mountain, uh, and with Moholy and at the New Bauhaus and then the Institute of Design. Um, there aren't a great number of those people in the world, which you would think there were millions because of the influence they've had. That influence uh, came from not uh, from not uh, hiding from the facts of life, that there's commerce out there, um, that you may or may not want to deal with it, but it's going to be there anyway. You might as well understand how it operates. Uh, whether you want to relate to it, use it for your purposes, or be used by it, is up to you. Um, I never heard Henry or any of the other people from the Bauhaus use the old classic, but I'll say it now. In my opinion, they were doing precisely what the idea of education has been in the Western world, and that is to lead the examined life. And doing that, you can't hide
0: from things. So you feel like he encouraged other interests within the university? Oh, very much mathematics so. Mathematics or engineering, yes. whatever he would encourage you to remain in that. In
1: fact, he was uh, he was probably uh, uh, one of the few people who could have started a department as such, or a photo program within the art department, and uh, <clears throat> made it grow into a big graduate school and all this sort of crap. And he refused to do it. Well, that made him about as popular as smallpox. With the academic administrative mind, you know. But he didn't want to do this. Uh, he was not, apparently, against somebody coming in and doing that if they wanted to, but he wasn't going to do it. He wanted to teach people to use the medium, to find themselves, to understand the world they lived in, and make up their mind what they wanted to do about it.
0: You mentioned that, uh, that at first you had disagreements with him. Uh, concerning the kinds of work that you were both interested in, did he tend to teach by by being caustic, by defeating the student? Uh? No, it
1: was a misunderstanding of where I was coming into the system. He didn't know me, and I didn't know him. Uh, we knew people in common, but we we didn't have time to talk. He had 18 or 15 students in the class, and uh, I simply happened to be one that first semester, and we had never spoken outside of my asking to use the dark room and his saying and roll if you want to do that. Uh, so when I went through the uh, photogram routine and then uh, cutting up the photograms and making montages and copying and so on and so forth, I was coming from an angle completely different than I would have had I been a rank beginner. And he said, you're making things that are artificial, and I said, no, I'm making things I haven't made before. And he said, "Well, they don't look like beginners' work." And I said, "Well, I'm not a beginner." And he said, "Bring in your work." And so I brought in—I don't know how many prints—and then we got off to the right start because we were speaking two different languages for a while. Uh, he was—he um, was sometimes um, short of patience with people. Um, if somebody was a complete ass, he was quite capable of. Uh, of uh, being caustic, I I felt. He had um, little patience with people who didn't do their homework. And I don't mean their photo homework. I mean their intellectual homework. And I think uh, he put off a number of people and got the reputation for being a very tough son of a bitch because of this. Uh, I never had trouble of that sort with him all during the time that I knew him. Um, If others did, well, I think he occasionally told Jerry Ueltspin or Jack or somebody in very straight terms what he thought. And They've um, expressed appreciation for that later. I don't know how they felt about it at the time, though. His language was quite special, and I had to scramble to understand his special uses of certain terms. They were special uses in <coughs> from where I came from. In his tradition of the people he had known in the arts, they were commonplace uses of the terms.
0: Let's talk a little about uh, his use of language, the specialized language. Quite a bit has been uh, has been mentioned about it. I'd like to get a little specific about it. Could you, first of all. Give me an outline of what you mean by his
1: specialized language. Well, well, you have to remember, it's been quite a few years. I I can think back of our conversation this last weekend when I was up at his home in Incline Village in Nevada. We were talking about irony, and its all-inclusiveness, in a sense. It's a kind of critical term that can be used, and, and a set of techniques that c- are covered by that term can be used to examine almost everything and pull off layer by layer the meaning after meaning after meaning and so on. And you can do that with riddles and jokes <coughs> and literature and science reports and so on and so forth. So, in a sense, the word irony is uh, falls into that category of referring to everything in general and nothing in particular. Well, I can imagine Henry saying something like that to some sophomores or juniors at Indiana University, 1950 or 1952, and they're wondering, what in the hell is he talking about? They would have wondered the same thing if an English prophet spoke spoken that way, and they did. But to find a guy in photography, And all I really wanted to do was to learn to make snapshots and please mom and dad and have a hobby and have this guy take this shit seriously. You know, that was just too much. So I think that's what I'm talking about. Special use of language, as trained people often use it, um, confused many of the students who were there um, knowing quite well what they wanted, but it wasn't what he was going to spend much time on
0: you and Henry wrote some things about critical vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a number of Pieces were, were circulated in Kalamazoo. <laughs>
1: well, we wrote a number of things. I think the first thing we wrote was in 1948, about uh, 1950, and it was a pamphlet. I believe Jack had something in it, and Henry and I had something in it, and uh,
0: was mm-hmm. that the piece called Photography?" A uh,
1: little maybe offset thing that we do, and uh, at that time, <clears throat> I had written a very short piece for a longer essay, and that short piece was circulated, and, and a, uh, a prof in the philosophy department in Northwestern, whose name I'm sorry to say I can't recall at the moment, by some chance read it became very interested in that point of view I was expressing. Uh, that pho- the camera made photograph has these layers of concern. It's symbolic on the one hand and it's a sign like thing standing for a concrete object on the other. And you can shift back and forth the viewer's ideas by title you stick on it or how dark you print it or light you print it, so on and so forth. But anyway. Uh, that was the first shared effort I was involved with with Henry. And then we did uh, we mimeographed a lot of things. and uh, I left uh, the university and came back a couple of times. and uh, i had I was writing regularly and photographing and showing and doing some film work. And uh, I couldn't find much of a press in this country. Uh, in fact, Minor uh, just totally disagreed with any of the things that he read of mine. And uh, I'm sorry I couldn't help that, you know. <laughs> so, I did find a press in, um, I found an exhibition space in Japan. I found a press in England and France. And occasionally, the, the one-night stand, the kind of publications in this country, somebody would just need something to fill up some space. and. I had something, and I gave it to them, and then they'd go broke the next month. But I don't know where, where a lot of that material is, but um, it was good for me to practice the deadline business, uh, to meet um, objections such as Minor often had. Um,
0: Who did you perceive as your audience at that point?
1: I didn't know. I still don't. I Well, I can... I can name individual people, but I can't. I can't find a group. Perhaps uh,
0: I can imagine. Is more more of that planned, or is that has oh, that died, I've got,
1: or? No, I've got packing boxes of
0: things. And
1: uh, Henry just asked me last uh, weekend if I, I'd mind if he would get the Jim Denny and down in Arizona to um, request formally that I send him my papers. Um, I wouldn't mind, except that they're in such a mess and they're so disorderly uh, that I don't think it would be of any great scholarly value. There are a few things I would like, certainly, to, to, to forward to him, because I think they might be of interest sometime in the future, but they're so damn special. I mean, special in terms of special interest, and uh, fairly abstract, and so on, that I, I, we've got enough of that sort of thing in the, in the uh, photo press at the moment. And uh, I'm not interested just in photography, I'm interested in human behavior, and photography is the key for my understanding.
0: In that early piece on photography, uh Uh, It has come to my attention that uh, that was a traumatic experience for Jack Welthop, because uh, he wrote something at Henry's request, and then Henry said, here, Robert Forth better rewrite this. And then you rewrote Jack's piece, and it made him very nervous about his writing ability for several years. You know, that's strange.
1: I didn't didn't remember that. until you just now mentioned it. But I do remember something like that happened. And I don't even remember the circumstances. That's strange. <clears throat> well, <laughs> writing is not, uh, uh, writing is a second language. and uh, I think uh, the sooner people understand that, uh, they can they can uh, make peace with themselves if they feel they aren't, quote, a good writer. You learn a second language by practicing it. Some people have a knack for picking up languages. They may not have anything to say, you know. <laughs> so I know how what the struggle is to learn a, a second language.
0: Jack said that he feels now that when he, when he writes, he's always somehow in the back of his mind trying to please Henry with
1: it. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting, <laughs> that's not bad, either. You know, uh, I digress on that point, because, again, we, um, the, uh, the ego bit and Henry Smith at Indiana University, very important. Since he was a friend, I couldn't help him suffer, but I could sympathize with him. Um, In music, it isn't at all unusual for a person to say something like Jack said about a teacher. But in the visual arts, we're all supposed to have uh, jumped full-grown from Zeus's head like Athena, you know, here we are. We have no what We learned from no one. We came from nowhere. We are here. Miracle. Voila. And uh, it's one of the few areas. Painters are this way, and the sculptors, and the whole goddamn bunch of visual artists are that. And I don't quite know why. I wish I did know why, but I don't quite know why. Um, the last publicly recognized, nationally recognized artists who, in my opinion, um, behaved like musicians very often do, performers, dancers do occasionally, uh, were the people from, um, like, Matisse's age. when he said he owed a certain amount to his teacher, who, though an academician, uh, taught him a sense of freedom. <coughs> Jackson Pollock, on the other hand, and in that film that Namath made, Namath, uh, said something about Tom Benton. He said uh, when he studied with Tom Benton, he was grateful to him, because Benton gave him something to fight against. Now, (coughs) uh, that's an interesting way of using teachers. Um, Jack should, I would say, I shouldn't feel that he's out of a tradition when he says he has a teacher looking over his shoulder, as long as it isn't a father or a god. You're, you're safe, <laughs> if you've got Jehovah over there, well, you know, it's a guilt thing.
0: <laughs> Before we go on too much further, I, I would like to see if we can pick up anything uh, from your recollections of other students who were there at the time. Uh, there was Yulesman, uh,
1: Jerry, Steph. Jerry
0: Stephanie, Dave Curl, Bob Snyder. and.
1: Um, Jerry Stephanie and uh, Jerry Uelsman were there after I had left. I, uh, my relationship with, with um, the art department and with Henry was like the relationship of many of his students. I was mainly in anthropology at the time, though I was taking actually a double major. Uh, in fact, I didn't know I was doing that until I was told by the dean of students, just take a few more courses and you'll get a degree, and I thought, oh, Christ, that's great. <laughs> so I had, I had absolutely no plan to my education, except I was very curious about certain areas. But I, I, I enjoyed going to that dark room because uh, in the evenings occasionally, uh, he had people from the uh, uh, you know, astronomy majors and Ph.D. candidates and sociology people and math and business. Jack Welpott came from the Biz School of Business into the place. Uh, English majors, all kinds of people with their own points of view, and uh, they sorted themselves out pretty quickly. The serious ones did. Now, in the case of Stephanie and, uh, and Ewellsman, they had already, if I recall, been to RIT, and they had come for master's work in design, and of course, Henry was there, and um, they studied mainly with him. Uh, uh, the next generation would be uh, somebody like David Heinz, who teaches filmmaking over at CCAC, where I'm working. And uh, he, again, came from other, another school and came in as a design student. Paul Sheritz came from the University of Denver and learned more about filmmaking from Henry, I suppose, than uh, well I don't know whether he, could, he he also was very fond of uh, Stan Brackage and learned a great deal from him, too. But uh, Henry was able to challenge you to think about what the hell the material was and your organic reaction to it and what the value of it all was. And uh, it didn't matter whether you were taking uh, photographs uh, through a telescope or in the astronomy department, truly. uh, The most god-awful illustrations in the world are in science books. If We could only get some aesthetic point of view in some of the scientific pictorial information. There's no telling how we might view the universe and the earth. A little more kindly, compassionately, maybe. But those crude, god-awful things, and, and especially the psychologists. Uh, I don't know whether you know the dramatic uh, thematic apperception test. A group of hand-drawn pictures, and then you tell a story about them, and they find out what kind of bugs you got. Well, those pictures are just hard to look at. And I'd much rather look at the Rorschach ink plots because at least chance was involved and not a crude dumb ox. <laughs> you know, so, so that kind of mixture, I'm jumping a bit, but that kind of mixture in a dark room uh, should have been, in my estimation, the same kind of mixture that you should have in a sculpture studio or a painting studio. The astronomy guys in there and the sociology people and the nursing people and so on and so forth. Because the dialogue then comes from a wide variety of points of view, and truly you can begin peeling away meanings and getting down to
0: meanings and meanings you'd never see by yourself. If the instructor is particularly interested in fostering dialogue, that that would be the case. Was that true with Henry Smith, or was was he a lecturer?
1: No. No. Henry taught, I believe, no, I may be mistaken, because he and Beaumont may know differently, but I believe that Henry and Beaumont began teaching history of photography the same year, about 1946 or 47. Mm-hmm. Henry there at IU when he took that job as a junior faculty member, though a mature man. Uh, Henry's, I took the course twice, I think, and he used uh, Newhall's Short History of Photography. As, uh, All right. I think I was saying that uh, Henry was <coughs> teaching the history of photography, and I believe I took the course twice. Henry used Beaumont's short history of photography as a text. That was your homework. You just read that and looked at the pictures, but the lecture that Henry would give was his own. He didn't lecture out of a book. In the meantime, he was taking courses himself. Uh, from uh, the art historians and from the English critics and so on and so forth. And he had the pleasure of studying uh, with Kenneth Burke and with uh, William Empson when he came to this country for a short time and so on and so forth. So he was taking advantage of the university at, uh, with a certain kind of humility that I think uh, dignifies the scholar. And uh, I I was saying, I believe, uh, before the tape shut off, that. Uh, This is a side of of Henry Smith that is not very often seen or appreciated, at any rate, uh, because he does come on very often in very certain statements, or certain sounding statements, but he's most willing to consider everybody else's point of view, including students. And he did learn from students, that mix of students from all those departments, and he himself taking courses to improve his own insights and so on. And it hasn't stopped. He's retired now, but um, his book collection and my book collection keep growing because we know how little we know. And, um, again, it's like seeing a photograph, uh, as he very often did. And he would simply say, I don't understand it. I've got to have some time to think about that. And we've all had the experience, and in my case, it's sometimes been as long as 30 years before... I could go back to an image that made no sense to me, and it made sense to me. And it is like learning the second language. First you have to learn the language, which was the experience in between, two viewings, and then you can find out something of what's been said. It's been there all the time, like a book in Chinese. You
0: know?
1: <laughs> but if you don't know Chinese, tough luck.
0: The Chinese have an expression that says you only can learn those things that you already know.
1: Yes, that helps. You you really don't invent the wheel each time. Um, the beauty of uh, the idea of discovery, and Smith knows uh, something about this in terms of his photographs, uh, you always start from something familiar. Tiniest clue in a photograph or in a text or whatever if it comes from your past experience, is that anchor point that can get you into the area that you don't know so well or don't know at all. Discovery occurs that way. Always occurs that way. When uh, David, uh, David, no, Red Hair, that's the guy's name. <laughs> I've forgotten whether his name was David or not. But Red was a, a student of Henry's and worked for uh, Roy Stryker for a while. And uh, when Red went through Henry's course doing photograms, he was the guy that started using Cairo syrup on a piece of glass. And Henry said, God, that's great. Thank you very much. You know, I'm going to use it myself. And uh, never has he hidden the fact that uh, that was a student's discovery. Uh, When I was printing, and I would very often print the same negative in very different ways because it was a different time and it needed a different meaning, and uh, I was not very interested in the long-scale West Coast print quality. Some I printed very gray, some of this, that, and the other. Uh, at first, that um, I really got under Henry's skin, and then I pointed out why I was doing it, and he considered that I was a student. He considered that and he said, My God, I've learned something. I can understand something about Walker Evans now that I didn't understand before. Because Evans, whenever he printed himself, very often did those things. He didn't make the classic prints, so to speak. Uh, Not many people did, those who printed their own negatives, Uh, except, I think, uh, Weston, to a degree, and, and Adams, because there was a system involved. You know, in the case of uh, of Adams, work. so I found him to, uh, uh, to be uh, easily up <laughs> easily upset by pe- certain people or certain attitudes. I found him to be generous, willing to to give a footnote to anybody. Uh, never one to uh, to take without uh, giving credit. And um, I was really impressed by a guy who, at uh, his age, with his accomplishments, was still willing to take beginning courses here and there in the university,
0: in areas that he
1: wasn't certain of.
0: Did he bring a lot of the, the work of other artists into the classroom, for you Yes,
1: uh, by slides or by reference, and saying, you ought to go to the library and look up so-and-so Charlie Sheeler's paintings and see how that works with photographs and so on Um, he did a a one thing Paul Vanderbilt was very generous in in that he allowed uh, Henry to bring back to Indiana University negatives out of the Library of Congress uh, while Paul was still there and in good favor and uh, Henry brought back some Walker-Evans negatives, and we were all allowed to print them, and so on. Which was an interesting manner of knowing a person's work. I kept some of the prints that I made because I wanted to compare them to what finally Evans um, approved for publication. And it was interesting to me that, um, despite the fact that we used the same attitude towards printing. I didn't do anything like he did. He did something totally different with his own negatives. So the quality of understanding was different, but it was, an, it was a very valuable lesson to me. And I've always been appreciative of Vanderbilt uh, and everything he's done. <coughs> and uh, that was very generous of him. Um, other reference material was um, the slide collection that Henry made himself, black and white slides. Um, because there weren't any slides available to teach the history of photography from, really. And so, uh, out of textbooks and on his summer trips to museums and so on, including the Library of Congress, um, he was given an opportunity to copy people's works to make slides from. He had three and a quarter, four slides, lantern slides, to teach from, a large collection all of his own doing because he wanted to do well. Um, I haven't, I don't think that's an attitude many people any longer, um, a foster. Uh, they do prefer buying everything ready-made. But I do see occasionally a teacher who is, um, who is personally concerned, and will go out of their way to put in the forty hours a week plus necessary. To to do a job and then to do your other job. Uh, they're fairly rare human
0: beings. So. Did you feel that, that there was a, a sense of his interest in the history revolving mm. around certain mm. classic figures, or was no, he interested the in, in the, the, the folk art aspects of the medium? He
1: was interested in the medium. and um, any uh, any. Uh, intellectual conflicts that he's had over the years with the people who have stood for the classic approach. Again, Beaumont's choice of photographers, I would say, in his books and so on. Uh, Henry had no squabble with the choice, but he said, why don't you add more? And Beaumont apparently felt that this defined the best, you know. So, you're certain, you're certain, and if you're not, you're not. But uh, that collection that uh, Smith built up included uh, the well-known uh, commercial photographers, fashion photographers, because many of the things that they were coming across with uh, were teaching the non-commercial people something, especially the fashion people. You know, they had to strive very hard to keep ahead of their own pack, and in so doing, they would make, quote, a mistake and turn it into a pot of gold, and then it became a part of the craft, you know. Uh, Steichen's work as a commercial man um, versus Steichen as a painter and a photographer was a part of a concern that Smith had. He was interested in the Stieglitz and his squabble with Steichen and their points of view and so on. He was looking for a set of roots. I'm sure he found his own personal or his own central imagery in in uh, classic mythology, as expressed in photographs. And he, uh, his color concern, I think, is far more profound than anybody except Al King, who was a color theorist that I knew and uh, studied very shortly with at the Art Center in 1940. Six or seven. Al King was a the color theorist and designed a lot of the lighting and so on for Hollywood sets and stuff. So Marvelous color theorist. Uh, uh, Henry has the same insight into color. And uh, it's something he uh, hasn't, uh, I think, made uh, public. But I wish uh, he would make it public because he's got some insights we all need at any rate.
0: He was, uh, of course, working with color very early,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, way, way ahead of, of any uh, of the rest of the the major art figures.
1: Uh, yes, with that kind of color, with <coughs> with truly uh, synthetic color.
0: Now, you know a lot of that work which involves the, uh, the matrixes of uh, the, the Keros syrup mm-hmm. and such? you mentioned that the idea is that when we view something that we don't understand we start with the point of reference that we do understand was that one of the reasons you feel that he got into uh, anthropomorphizing his figures in that a lot of them are uh, certainly yes uh,
1: i'm not sure that he ever tried to because that uh, the way he used it it moves like a liquid lens and you turn the light up and you want to stop the exposure Certain so, turning the camera inside out, so to speak. So the stuff ran until it looked interesting to him, and he turned the light out, and then that was the image. And you couldn't make them twice, (laughs) so they're one of a kind, so so to speak. Uh, He made, uh, I I would assume, he made a hell of a lot more than I've ever seen, but the ones that he chose to show were the ones that meant something deeply personal to him. And the classic concept of the lame prince, Oedipus myth and all that sort of thing, comes out in a number of the things. The idea of the trickster hero, the culture hero, uh, comes out in some of the clown-like and carnival-like things that occurred when he did cut paper uh, photogram. But, you know, I can can almost... uh, some of the things that he was learning from Kenneth Burke, let's say, and William Empson, uh, giving him an insight into his own work. I mean, we do things we don't know what we're doing. If you don't, you're not doing much. <laughs> you know, you're repeating yourself. It's like indigestion. Uh, <laughs> so I think he gained a certain amount of insight from people who were working in the, in the verbal area area of written language analysis and criticism. He was very fond of, uh, again, this years ago, but he was fond of Empson's book, Seven Types of Ambiguity, and uh, Kenneth Burke's two books, uh, Rhetoric, uh, the Grammar and the Rhetoric uh, books, and uh, turned me on to Burke very early. I've learned a great deal from his, uh, writing, about how to look at the visual world. I mean, you know, after all, our, our mouths and our eyes are not separate organisms. They belong to the same overall combination.
0: Did some of his writing encompass color theory?
1: Not to my knowledge. I may have missed something, you know, because uh, though we are uh, good friends, we haven't always kept in close touch or correspondence. So I may have missed some things that he's written about, color. I can't recall offhand anything. Perhaps you have seen something that I don't know about.
0: I'm not aware of anything. No. I'd like to move to another area. Uh, he has a well-known status as an, as an outsider. Yes. Apparently, he was an outsider in terms of the faculty and, and administration of IEU. Yes. yes, He's had something of a status as an outsider mm-hmm. in the photographic world. Yes. Um, do you feel that that's a tool or a burden? No, I, I, I'm,
1: I don't believe that you can feel inside and um, be an independent thinker. You can work within organizations. But you can't can't, uh, give your life to them and still think independently. That's my point of view. And I consider uh, Smith an uh, an independent thinker. He attempts always to examine the way the world is working and how he's thinking about it and feeling and so on. And uh, you can do that in many ways and wear many disguises. I don't think he wore a very good disguise if he was trying to disguise the fact that he was really not one of the Moose Club members, you know. <laughs> it's a, it's unfortunate, too, because I don't know how his—I know his sons, I know his oldest son, who now lives out here, and he comes over to visit quite often. Um, they look at their father much like my oldest kids look at me. and I think as a somewhat detached or distant way. And that's in part due to the fact that uh, also uh, with your closest loves, you still have to examine what the hell's going on. And so uh, you very often get to give the impression of being outside outside of emotion, outside of intimacy, which isn't, of course, the case.
0: So in a sense,
1: you're saying that uh, he wasn't truly outside of. No, his, he wanted his medium. as an example, uh, S.P.E. He wanted desperately for that society to become a true professional society, and our ideas were originally to be a corresponding society, almost in the old Franklin, Benjamin Franklin idea of the junta, where if you have something important to say or a work important to have shown you circulated amongst this chain of people. And occasionally, it would be necessary to get together and talk things over, especially if somebody brought up something worth talking about. So, our original ideas weren't really on such regular clockwork, organizational type thing. Uh, Henry didn't fit well into that, because he wasn't going to play that game Now, I'm, again, I'm putting words in his mouth, which may be all wrong, but as I recall, he felt that um, many of the people who were involved were just like the people in his history department or his physics department or what have you. They were making brownie points by getting into another organization, and uh, that way they would show on their uh, dossier at promotion time or whatever, you know, and he just wasn't playing that. Game. He wasn't built that way. I don't know why he wasn't. I mean, I don't know enough about his early background. He came from a fairly substantial middle-class family and so on, but I think he disagreed with the values from a very early age, so he didn't want to play
0: that middle-class academic game very much. Well, we're speaking yeah. here of somebody who has immense curiosity and <clears throat> immense uh, intellectual ability. And we see him uh, as something of an outsider the question has come up I think it was Harvey Himmelfarb who asks the question why with this ability and this curiosity that does he pick his fight in the relatively small arena of photography rather than something more uh, earth-shaking politics, philosophy, That's even pers- art criticism. That's
1: precisely the reason that you don't do things because of the size. You do things because of the importance to you. It is a, the world is meaningless if it's unimportant to you, whether it's the tiny little world <laughs> or the great big world in the universe. And uh, I don't think we have much. We, we I don't think we have much choice in those matters. I mean, to to get another view of that question, you have to consider who's asking it. Harvey's background was in uh, as an undergraduate. I think was in hard sciences to begin with, and uh, physics was important at that time. Now we know the damage that it can also do. Um, if you're interested in wheeling and dealing, uh, certainly by all means jump into something that has some political power to it, and physics was a very powerful area. By the way, another book Smith and I like very much is the book on Oppenheimer and Lawrence, because we've both told students that we can tell them how to succeed if they want to, and that's one book we tell them to read. See how those guys prepared themselves to succeed, and how they manipulated, and so on and so forth, and they succeeded. And uh, neither of them were, <clears throat> were, the, were the icebreakers in physics. So I don't think you always uh, are in control of what you choose to be interested in. I think uh, your curiosity has to guide you, not your need for popularity or acceptance. I think the person who is arguing now, perhaps, about uh, certain Uh, well, let me put it this way. Before the Kissinger-Nixon regime, you could have argued your head off about acupuncture and gotten no listeners. That didn't mean that you weren't on the right track. Something else had to take place. It could well be, in the case of some of the things Smith has stood for and investigated, that general conditions will change, and all of a sudden, where has he been all this time? He's always been there. And that's the only answer you can give to anyone. Why do scholars write such esoteric theses at times? Because I hope that's what they were interested in, and somebody may make use of it in the future.
0: You you mentioned something briefly uh, that brings up the question could he have done more for his students professionally?
1: No. Uh, he could have done more for them materially by becoming a, a theatrical agent, a booking agent. I'm, I'm serious now, <laughs> even though I picked a facetious term, maybe. Uh, I know that the reputations of many chairmen and uh, program heads, in photography and film particularly, have been built on the way they promoted their graduates. Um, I don't recall that Henry has ever uh, refused to help someone when they asked. But I don't think he saw his role as a booking agent. And uh, I'm all for that. I think if you're in a university, fine, have a placement program. If you get a letter from a graduate who says, "Will you write me a letter of recommendation?" and you can do it in all honesty, by all means, do it. If you know somebody who is doing something that you feel unusual, and you mention it to someone else, and they get a show, marvelous. But you don't need to expect 10 percent out of that. That's not your your mission in life. Perhaps it's the mission of a booking agent. So uh, there's a there's a division of labor here that. Uh, Finally, reflects values, personal values. Harvey's is reflected in one way; Henry's would be in another, mine in another, and so on. And it has nothing to do with right or wrong.
0: Do you feel that there was then at least emotional preparation for the art world? Was, were you appraised of the situation in the art world? I already knew it
1: see, because I'd come from the art world, <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know whether he uh, was able to uh, do much more for undergraduates than to tell them that, uh, don't believe everything you read or see, particularly in the area of criticism and reportage on the art world. He certainly was able to do the case history approach, which we were very fond of, a lot of us. And we gathered folklore, and I still have files of what I call folklore on the arts and artists, how they succeeded. And I'm most willing to tell any of my students, verbally, not in writing, but verbally, what I know about the gossip. And I tell them ahead of time, this may be gossip, or if I know for sure that so-and-so slept with so-and-so to get a show, and that's how it happened, I'll say it that way. But, yes, he had he had quite a bit of this information, and he got it. On those summer trips, he made very often, interviewing older photographers, people retired, and so on. Who, they're the they're the treasury, the storehouse of all of this, that you'd better not write down unless you <laughs> put a lawsuit on your ass. <laughs> it's like Clifford Still telling me that to this history of art that he was writing over the years. He said, uh, probably I'll never publish it because I'll never be able to be rich enough. To The legal fees (laughs) that will be required to defend myself.
0: (laughs) Over the years, you've carried on a uh, close personal relationship Mm -hmm. with Henry as well. Is he ever the teacher? Are you uh, perhaps more equal? Does he try to guide you?
1: We never. um, We've never played that game after that first go-around, where we didn't understand each other, the teacher talking different languages. We never played that game. I've always told him how grateful I've been for what I learned from him, and uh, I tell my students that quite often. And he has done the same thing. So um, I'm most happy to call him a teacher, because I, I knew very few people that I, would, uh, that I respected enough to call. Teacher. But uh, I don't I don't make a big thing of that. Um, I sure would have been uh, poorer intellectually and uh, intuitively had I not met him. I would have uh, I just wouldn't have led as uh, full a life because I wouldn't have seen as many things. So um, I'm very grateful, and uh, I think that. Perhaps it would be, uh, I can recall, oh, say, uh, students who would go to study with Casals or with uh, Segovia or whatever, <coughs> ask Harvey this, uh, what good is Segovia in studying with him to learn a greater technique at the guitar? Well, <laughs> what there? there's no answer to that sort of thing, you know? It is your own value judgment. Uh, So many of the people who have studied with the the great uh, music masters are not themselves popular are considered great. But I'm sure they got a great deal from that experience and insight into their own sense of order about
0: the world. somewhat reluctant to ask another question on this tape, I have a feeling we're, we're on. nearing the end of it. So I'm going okay. to switch cassettes at this point okay. so we can dive into a new